Hi, this is Maureen, and before we start, I just want to let you know that if you hear an odd but perhaps pleasant sound in the background, it's just Becky's cat, Khabibi, purring. I just didn't want anyone to be alarmed by it. Now on with the show. This is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you have, do you have any <laughs> Why am I so updates? out of it? Uh, I do. I have a couple updates. But first, I want to, I, I guess it's not really a peeve, but, you know, we've talked before about cliches on true crime shows and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just... I've seen at least two where people have said, you know, this is the kind of place where no one locked their doors. Yeah, yeah. And then there's no forced entry. And the police are like, well, that means that she obviously either knew the person or let someone in. And I'm like, especially in a place where no one locks their doors, but just in the normal course of life, are your doors locked 24 hours a day? I know. Like, not that I want to invite burglars i guarantee you there's nothing in my house that you would want to take but if i'm sitting in my house during the day my doors aren't locked well my one door that works isn't locked you know i know yeah oh well why don't you just tell everybody i know yeah sorry well that's why i i prefaced it with i don't have anything worth stealing and also i would be here and do you really want to engage with me you know, like I lock them when I go to bed at night, and sometimes yeah. they're locked during the day. Yeah, that's how I was. If if I wasn't there, they would be more likely to be unlocked than if I was Me too. there. But it's the thing, like, that cops never say, well, maybe she just didn't lock her doors. And then it, half the shows, people say it's the kind of place nobody locks their doors. I know. So, But anyway, so it just bugged me. I, I guess it's just a cliche bugging thing. So do you have any updates? I do. Ooh, okay. Um, as I mentioned last time, I think it was last time, maybe it was the time before. Who knows? It all <laughs> runs together. They all, yeah. Evidentiary hearings were being held in Fairbanks, Alaska at the beginning of the month, which is February, in the trial of Stephen Downs, who's charged with killing Stephanie Serge at the University of Alaska Fairbanks in 1993. And I'm sorry, I can't remember what episode we first talked about this in. As a main mini, though I think it was 63 or 64, and I know we had a substantial update in episode 67, which was one of those update episodes, and I think that's where I talked about it the most, but in any case... So this is just an ongoing thing we update. I got my information from the Anchorage, Alaska Daily News because the Lewiston Sun Journal, my password all of a sudden isn't saved and I didn't want to go through the whole rigmarole and I can't imagine that they would have anything. It's not like they're sending a reporter to Alaska, so I don't know why I have to make excuses. But anyway, (laughs) so Down's attorney, James Howeniak, is that how you pronounce that? 
Hawaniac. Hawaniac, yeah. Yes. Says he wants DNA that was taken from Downs and Auburn when he was arrested in February 2019 excluded and other evidence thrown out as well because the search warrants are faulty. I mean, that's the most part. I mean, there's a lot of motions and stuff with this hearing, but I'm just going to boil it down. Fairbanks Detective Randall McFerrin admitted on the stand February 3rd that the information in his sworn affidavit to get the search warrant was wrong. McFerrin said mm. in the affidavit that a student who lived on the same floor as Downs in the dorm where Sergey was killed back then told police that Downs and his roommate owned guns when in fact the student actually said he remembered Downs' roommate had guns, not Down. Mm-hmm. McFerrin said at the hearing earlier this month, it was an error on my part. I just remembered it incorrectly. I thought he'd mentioned both men had guns in their room. And he said he included that misinformation in his police report, and it was unintentional. Then, in 2009, when Downs' girlfriend at the time of the killing, Catherine D. Schweintz-Lee, was interviewed by investigators about Sergei's murder, McPherson wrote in his search warrant affidavits that Lee said she didn't know whether Downs had a gun when he was at school and they were dating. But... Reading in court this month from a transcript from that interview with police in 2009, McFerrin said Tuesday that Lee actually said, Steve was into weapons, but he didn't have a gun. Ah. Police got a 22 caliber revolver from Down's home on February 14th, 2019, the same night he was questioned by police and his cheek swabbed for DNA right before he was arrested, and he told police he had bought the gun within the last two or three years from a man in Turner, Maine. And I can't remember, and it didn't say in the story, if they tracked that guy down or even tried to. But I I don't know if the guy, I mean, would the guy have the same gun, what, like 30 years after killing somebody? Maybe. Howaniac said he hopes Superior Court Judge Thomas Temple will suppress statements made by Down in that interview in Auburn, Maine, on February 14, 2019, with McFerrin and an Alaska State Trooper sergeant, they played the interview at the hearing, and Down asks if he can have a lawyer present for the DNA collection, and then says he should probably have someone speaking on his behalf, and then he wants to get mm-hmm. a professional to speak for him. Why didn't you just stop at that point? Howiniak asked McFerrin at the hearing. He did not say, I want a lawyer, oh, I want to stop. Please. I know. McFerrin testified. He just kept engaging with us. And they always say that. It's like you have to know the secret code. Oh, come you know, on. That people, they should pass laws. That's, but anyway. Howaniak also asked McFerrin about the dozens of alternative suspects police had developed over the decades, including a man whose sister told police nearly 20 years after the crime that her brother had confessed. A witness had said... She'd seen someone who looked like that guy leaving the floor of the university dorm that night. So the sister said he confessed. Somebody else said she saw somebody who looked like him leaving the dorm. The guy had a history of violence towards women and had been recently serving time in prison for Hmm, homicide. Interesting. And at one point, police even developed a theory that Sophie's killer may have been in law enforcement. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And police arrested Downs after tracing him through Nance DNA on a genealogy website. A genetic marker that was carried on Downs' mother's side of the family linked him to semen found at the crime scene <sighs> in so- Sophie Sergey's vagina. Yeah. 
No other physical evidence from the crime scene has been linked to Downs, including fingerprints that were collected at the time. Howinniak said, and cops said in the affidavits, DNA evidence could only be used to prove that Downs had sex with her, but couldn't be used to prove he raped her or killed her. Downs is charged with sexual assault and murder in connection with her death, which happened on April 25th, 1993. Sophie Sergei was 20 of Pitkiss Point, Alaska, and was staying in a friend's dorm room at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. And custodians found her body in a woman's bathroom. She'd been shot in the back of the head with a 22, stabbed in the cheek and eye, mm. stuck with a blunt instrument, gagged with a mm. ligature, and shocked with a stun gun. God! The, the medical examiner concluded the cause of her death was the bullet in her head. All the articles on these recent hearings said they were expected to continue through the week, but the information I got was from a Tuesday one, and I couldn't find anything else. I, I have to tell you, the okay. internet has really confounded me, both with this and my story, as you'll tell later. And also, just one other thing, kind of an update on a thing I said I was going to update a few episodes ago. Um, I said that U.S. Rep. Cory Bush of Missouri was introducing legislation on coercive control in the U.S. House. Actually, though it is one of her priorities, what it really was when I looked more closely at the story, it was just an interview she gave with the New York Times about coercive control and her experiences, and nothing has happened legislatively. And you have an update too, right? Yes, I do. This is from episode 92. It was about two rapists from Massachusetts who separately come to Maine to hide and both were found years later you have to listen to the full episode to hear all the details this update is ivan keith was one of the rapists and at the time of our episode he still wasn't done he had pled guilty to two of the charges of rape and there were two more that he still hadn't gone to court for yet and just a few days ago it was reported that he pled guilty to the last two rapes that he had been charged with, which was one was in Taunton. The victim was jogging on the um, track at Taunton High School. And the other one was from Easton. And it was a cleaning lady who came outside to empty trash or something. I can't remember. And he grabbed her and attacked her. So both of those he pled guilty, has to serve for each one 25 to 30 years in prison. So he's going to be in prison the rest of his life. So that was my update. I saw him on the news the other night, and I said, that asshole, I know him. (laughs) And mom was like, what? And I think that's one of the few that they listened to. I think that was the one they listened to. Yeah, because their power was out, or their cable was out. It actually wasn't out. They just didn't know how to fix it. Yeah, same difference. So I guess I should just launch into my... Yes, I don't know what you're doing, so I'm very excited. And I had trouble... I didn't really have trouble coming up with something, but I was going to do one thing. It piqued my interest, and then I found why it looked a little familiar to me was it had been a four-part The Investigator series on Netflix... Um, ah. This was Carol Packman, whose husband, quote unquote, disappeared. Her husband obviously killed her. And yes. then he got caught because years later he tried to fake his own death. I had seen an, another true crime show, just a one hour thing, when missing turns to murder. And it was Ooh. decent, but it had a ton of holes. And I'm like, this is so familiar. This is so familiar. And then I found the one on Netflix. I ended up watching the whole thing, but I remembered how the reason I didn't remember it well was because the show was so bad. Because it's one of those, the guy is investigating and like yes. he comes rem- up with I stuff. I saw that one too. Right. He comes up with stuff that isn't new. Like, and our investigation discovered the sky was blue, you mm-hmm. know. 
And, it, and then they show him on the phone with somebody. Right. Is the sky really blue? Right. Yes, exactly. Or I just, hey, I just found out the sky is blue. And then they all <laughs> go into their investigative room and write on a giant glass wall with markers about the sky yeah. being blue. So anyway, that's kind of a long thing. Then I came across this kind of by accident. And I thought I'd oh. do this instead. All right. Because I, unfortunately, it has not been widely written about. Most of the information I got is from a lawsuit that's been filed against the city of Louisville, Kentucky, oh, Jefferson Louisville. County, Kentucky, seven police officers, oh. and some other places that I'll cite when I get to. But that's where most of the information is from. Janetta Carr was just 16 but she was anxious to get going on life. She'd already earned her GED, which for those of you who aren't familiar, that's your high school equivalency if you don't want to go through the whole four years of high school or if you drop out or something, you take the test and get the equivalent of a high school diploma. And she was about to start taking classes to earn a paralegal certification. One note that might be a little off is that she, at 16, was dating a 36-year-old Planis... I know. Planis Adolfi, a Haitian immigrant who drove a cab for Green Cab Company in Louisville, Kentucky, where they both lived. Her life was derailed at 9 a.m. October 23, 2005, when Planis was found dead in the parking lot of the apartment complex where he lived. This was Americana Apartments in Louisville. Planis was part of the tight-knit Haitian community in Louisville, and by all accounts, a very nice person. He gave free cab rides to neighbors at the apartment complex, which was described as diverse with a lot of immigrants. And in October 24, 2005, WAVE Channel 3 story, Wave. they appear to be the only one who covered his murder. He'd lived in the U.S. for 13 years, but his death only got a two-sentence snow in the October 26, 2005 Courier-Journal. Despite the fact his death was immediately determined a homicide, three people were eventually convicted, his name wouldn't appear in the Courier-Journal again until December 9th, 2020, more than 15 years. That's the day after Janetta Carr's attorneys announced she was suing the city of Louisville and seven of its police officers for wrongful conviction. The officers were Tony Finch, Gary Huffman, Terry Jones, Jim Lawson, Sean Siebel, Troy Pitcock, and James Hellinger. The suit asks for a jury trial, damages, and attorney's fees. For what happened in between in those 15 years, we have to rely largely on Janetta Carr's lawyers. If nothing else, this is a great illustration of how little regard was paid by the media or anyone else to the homicides in the black community and their fallout. Well, a lot did happen in those 15 years, and when the curtain rose on it on December 8, 2020, there was a lot to tell, including witness coercion, false testimony, Brady violations, and that Ooh. perennial favorite, what they like to call in Boston, testalying. That's when police give testalying. false statements. <laughs> That's when police give false statements in court, but uh -oh. it's not perjury because, you know, they're cops. There's a lot that can be said about the Boston Police Department, but this is not about them. Today, we're talking about Louisville. So let's go back to 2005 and take a look at how Janetta Carr, 16, ended up in prison for Planes Adolfi's murder and what happened after that. 
Much of the information, as I said, is from the thorough lawsuit filed by Lovey and Lovey, which probably is not how it's pronounced, (laughs) but it's like I of Chicago, who are representing... Lovey and Lovey. It's spelled L-O-E-V-Y, so maybe it's Lovey. Thurston Howell the Third. Well, that's all I can think of is Thurston Howell the Third and Lovey as her lawyers, but I (laughs) I shouldn't make fun. But anyway, keep in mind that what's claimed in a lawsuit is, quote, only one side of the story... As the Courier-Journal pointed out in its December 9th story on this, but I'll add something, the Courier-Journal didn't, that lawyers are compelled to put facts, not conjecture or falsehoods in a lawsuit. It should be given more weight than maybe just some cop saying something to a reporter or something. And the other side has not said anything because it's a lawsuit. On the day Planes was killed, police told WAV3TV that they wouldn't say how he was killed but that it was a homicide and he wasn't shot. The WAVE hmm. Channel 3 story written that day is the only record from what happened the day he was shot. Kevin Winfield, a resident of the Americana Apartments and friend of Planes, said that he was woken up by fire trucks. He looked out the window and saw a body on the ground. Hmm. At first he didn't recognize it, and then he realized it was his next-door neighbor, Planes Adolfi. Winfield didn't know anything about the murder how it happened, who did it, but said to Channel 3, it's hitting close to home. That's right across the street from me. Mm, (laughs) Literally close to home. Yes. He said Planes normally kept his cab parked right in front of his apartment. And I think he means right in front of the apartment building because you can look at pictures. It's one of those kind of mid-century brick apartment buildings, like three stories with windows, like kind of like a an unexciting college dorm type mm-hmm. building and with a little bit of grass and then a parking lot. But anyway, the cab wasn't there, even though Plani's body was. And as I said earlier, Plani's helped out his neighbors. Quote, he'd give you a ride if you needed it, Winfield said, because he owned his own cab. He was a very nice person. Hmm. The cab was found by police with its hood ajar in another neighborhood about six miles away later that day. It wasn't the first time a cab driver had been killed at the apartment complex. Channel 3 reporter Jeff Tang, who wrote the story, pointed out that in 2002, Haitian-born cab driver Eddie Papat was murdered there. Mm. That case was still unsolved in 2005 when Planes was killed. If it was ever solved, I can't find the information on the World Wide Web or on newspapers.com. Which doesn't mean it wasn't, it just means nobody reported about it. But it probably wasn't. Neighbors also told WAVE3 that there was a prostitution problem at the Mm. complex and speculated that could have something to do with the murder of Planes. Though it's hard to say what, since he was a cab driver, not a pimp, and Mm. prostitution doesn't play any part in the story. Police told Channel 3 that they were aware of the prostitution situation. Mm-hmm. Plane's murder was one of 55 in Louisville in 2005, and I'm not oh. sure how much that strained police resources, but they did investigate it, more or less. While police said that day that Plane's Adolfe hadn't been shot, what they didn't say is that he'd been strangled, which he had been. His oh. wallet and cell phone were also gone. You'll read in accounts from late last year that his ankles have been duct taped together. It's likely, though, that isn't true, and shows how the police version of things always seeps into other records, including accounts on exoneration websites, but more on that later. The Channel 3 story points out police at the scene were looking for evidence and clues. 
I'm like, yeah, good for them. <laughs> I'm glad they were doing that. Yes. Yeah. One of the things they found later, much later, was DNA from the person they believed attacked Planes, but they didn't know it that day. The night before Planes was found murdered, he played dominoes with friends at the apartment complex until a little before 10 o'clock. He and Janetta had been dating for about two months, but it was very casual. They didn't live together, and she didn't visit him there that night. At around 10.30, he took a trip to the Value Mart grocery store. Police found a receipt time-stamped at 10.47 p.m. in his pocket. Sometime after that, nobody's sure when, he was murdered. A resident of the apartment complex called police around 9 in the morning to say that someone was lying on the ground outside of the building. Officer Tom Goines arrived at 9.18 to find Plani's lying face-up on the ground. He called the EMS, who rushed to the scene and pronounced him dead. Goines then called the Louis Metro PD homicide unit at 9.37 a.m. Detectives Gary Huffman, Terry Jones, and Tony Finch all responded, with Finch, who was white, as lead investigator. And I think all the cops in this are white, but I'm not sure because um, I can't find photos and no one says. Mm. I know Tony Finch is because I've found photos of him. John Etta and other people I mention in it are black, including Planes. There's one person who isn't, and I'll, I'll say when I come, but it, this is obviously a race issue from the beginning okay. here. Their supervisor was Sergeant Troy Pitcock, and all four mm. would be named in Janetta's suit 15 years later. According to the report from the scene, Planes had an electrical cord around his neck that oh. he'd been strangled with, and it had been cut with a knife from a fan in his apartment. They also found a button on the ground and an artificial fingernail. They found packing tape around him, which they surmised had been used to bind his wrists and ankles. But they didn't know for sure. It was just pieces of packing tape. One man at the scene, Jacqueline Lucent, was asked to identify Planes. Planes was one of his best friends, and as Lucent identified the body, he was overcome with emotion. He ran to his car, telling Officer Huffman that he was going to church to let the Haitian community know what had happened. Both he and another friend, Maxone Lesgrange, said that Planes was trying to get the money together to visit Haiti. He had an old truck and a storage unit he was trying to sell. Another guy, Canel Decius, told Huffman he and Planes had agreed Decius could buy the truck for $3,800, and Decius gave him some money with the rest due when he got the truck. He told Huffman now, with Planes dead, he was worried about the deal. He wanted either the truck or he wanted his money back. Mm. The truck seemed wow. to be the focus that day of the police inquiry. And my guess is because it's possible that there was money floating around and that this was a possible robbery. It appears that after that day, they didn't do a lot of investigating mm. about that. But um, two other guys told Officer Sean Siebel, and he's another one who's named in the lawsuit, that someone had offered Planes 3000 for it, but Planes wanted 5000 Someone else told Siebel that somebody paid Planes two or 3000 but then wanted his money back, and Planes kept 800 of it as kind of a non-refundable deposit thing. Officer Mike Bishop found Planes' cab around 2.30 p.m., six miles away, at the Jackson Woods Apartments. The exterior of the 1999 Ford Crown Victoria van was okay, but the inside was in disarray, with papers strewn all over, the center console knocked over, the stereo missing, and wires hanging out of the dashboard. Two women who lived at the apartment complex said they'd seen the cab there the night before around 10 or 10.30. They told this to um, Officer Hellinger, another one named in the suit, and it's not clear if it was there and gone, you know, if they saw it arrive and leave, or if it was just parked in the same spot. On October 27th, 
four days after the murder, Pawnee's friend Jacqueline Lusank called police and told them he knew who did it. Mm-hmm. It was a guy named Steve who worked at Walmart. Huh. He'd seen Steve and Pawnee's argue over a girl recently at Pawnee's apartment, and Steve threatened to kill Pawnee's, and people had to pull him away from him. After Pawnee's was killed, a friend of Steve's told Lusaint that Steve had continued to say he was going to kill Pawnee's, and another friend had told the friend of Steve's that he'd helped him do it. Hmm. Lusaint didn't know the name of the friend, but he did know where he lived, and so Detective Tony Finch had him get in the back seat of the car and drive to show him. When they drew, drove by, Lusaint was in the back seat, kind of scrunched down, hiding, and Finch later described a black male in a hoodie was in front of the house, and Lusaint, possibly because he was crouched down and hiding, couldn't say if it was Steve or the friend or who was in front of the house. Ultimately, Finch figured out that Steve was Stephen J. Lewis, and he pulled him over a night shortly after that for having a taillight out. Lewis acted all nervous and didn't have his license, and he gave a false name at first, so Finch, suspicious, hauled him into the homicide unit. Lewis waived his rights to silence an attorney. He admitted to Finch he knew Plonies, and he agreed to take a polygraph. He'd been there about three hours. By now it was 11.30 at night. He failed the polygraph three times, oh. according to police. Oh, yeah. He couldn't tell police where he'd been for the week before or the week after the murder, and this was November 13th, so it was about three weeks after. Hmm. He knew, though, that he was at his friend Daryl Taylor's house about a week after, and that's the house that Lusaint went by with Finch. And my guess is Finch said, well, I saw you at this house on Iroquois Street. And he goes, oh, yeah, okay, I remember being there. Um, yeah. He said he heard about Plenty's murder from his mother, his own mother, not Plenty's, and added that his mother and brother both kept accusing him of being the murderer. Hmm. Despite all this and the supposed three failed polygraphs, which are supposed to be such a great interrogation tool... Lewis wouldn't crack as far as the murder went. That's when Janetta Carr's name first came to police attention. No one had mentioned her at the scene, not even Plani's good friends. She had no connection to the apartment house where the cab was found. Nothing found at the scene connected her to the murder. But Steve Lewis, who was sick and tired of being interrogated and wanted the police off his back, told police he thought she might have something to do with it. At the time, Finch put in his notes that he knew Lewis was lying. The interrogation, which had started at 8.30 p.m. the night before, ended at 7 a.m. Oh, Jesus. Which is one thing that is an issue with interrogations. And Lewis was taken to the Department of Corrections for the traffic infraction he'd been picked up for the night before. This is when Jeanetta Carr's lawyers say that, quote, Instead of conducting a legitimate investigation into Steve Lewis, the obvious suspect, Finch, decided to manufacture false and fabricated evidence to frame Ms. Carr and her co-defendants. On November 30th, about two weeks after Lewis had been interrogated, a guy named Gene Batelot told Finch that Lewis and his mother were threatening to kill Jacqueline Lusaint and another witness because they thought they were talking to police about the murder. Hmm. But it didn't matter. Despite the fact that Lusaint and Daryl Taylor, the friend who had the house that they drove by, it turns out, had told the cops they knew Lewis had killed Planes. Police investigating the murder had a new focus and had stopped investigating Lewis. That's weird that they would, uh, whatever. Mm, well, my theory is, and you'll see more later, that he was proving very difficult. He didn't crack after all mm. the, you know, after almost 12 hours of interrogation. So they decide to go an easier route. It's just a bunch huh. of black people who cares, you mm. know. 
By the way, none of this either is about getting justice for Planes or anything. I don't think they gave a shit about him either. It's just, you know, their macho job to bust people. And so mm-hmm. that's what they do. But they had stopped investigating Lewis so much so that they never even disclosed to the attorneys of the three people they later arrested or apparently to the DA that um, Daryl Taylor had direct knowledge that Lewis did it or any of the other stuff that implicated him. Hmm. In fact, they never documented whatever other investigation they did of him as a suspect, just the um, interrogation and the drive-by. That failure to nail down Steve Lewis when they had the chance in November 2005 not only ended up sending three innocent people to prison, but it had another tragic consequence. Carr's lawyers point out in the lawsuit, Daryl Taylor shot and killed Steve Lewis in 2012. Hmm. Some other evidence that the police decided to keep to themselves as they continued to put a fake case together includes the fact that Plani's cell phone was stolen in the attack and never recovered. But phone records show someone continued to use it afterwards, including making numerous calls to Florida and Los Angeles. These calls were never looked into, and none of this information was ever disclosed. But one thing's for sure, the three teenagers who were later charged didn't know anyone in those states and didn't make those calls. So the police never bothered to see who who was the numbers belonged to, who they were calling, and they didn't disclose any of that as they made their case. They just kept it a little secret. On December 19, 2005, Detective Finch talked to Carl Sowers, the father of Carla Sowers, 19, a friend of Janetta's, and and Carla is the one white person in this mix. When Finch told Carl it was about Plani's murder, Carl said Carla didn't have anything to do with that. Finch said, don't worry, we don't think Carla had anything to do with it either. We're just looking at two guys, Steve Lewis and Shandrick Williams. And Shandrick Williams is Carla's boyfriend. We just want to talk to your daughter and see if she has any information that can help us. The next day, Finch asked his boss, Sergeant Pitcock, for permission (laughs) to do surveillance on the house where Carla was living so they could arrest her. Pitcock said sure, and the next day, Carla was picked up on a bench warrant for shoplifting and brought in. Finch started interrogating her about Plani's murder at noon on December 20th. Carla said she didn't know anything about it. She was with Chandrick Williams, her boyfriend, with whom she lived, his sister Charday, and another friend, Whitley Hawkins, the night of the murder. Finch assured her early on he knew she didn't have anything to do with it, but as the interrogation went on, he used his best read technique training to tell her he thought she, Chandrick, her boyfriend, and Janetta Carr had done the murder. Carla maintained her innocence for hours as the interrogation went on, and Finch became more coercive. He lied to her and told her that someone had used her phone to call Planes before he was murdered. He ended up spinning a false yarn about how Chandrick and Janetta had done it, and if Carla would agree that's how it happened, he'd help her out. Finally, Carla, feeling she had to tell him something, broke down and agreed to the false narrative. Finch told her then, like we've seen in so many false confessions, that now he was going to record it. He hadn't recorded any of the hours of interrogation Mm -hmm. before that. Now, some places now require entire interrogations to be recorded, but the practice then, and in a lot of places still, is that only the final statement is, if at all. You know, they don't want people to see how they make the sausages, right? That's right. When he came back into the room with the recorder, Carla told him that he had coerced her into repeating a false statement and that he had fed her the whole story and that she had just gone along with it to make this all end. 
She said the truth was that she didn't know anything about the murder and didn't know who did it and didn't know who used her phone to call Plani's. Something the poor girl believed was true, even though obviously Finch lied about it. And people, can I break in here to remind you yet again, if you're ever in this situation, the police can hmm. lie to you in an interrogation. They do it all the time. So first thing, unless you're being charged, you don't have to talk to them or stay there. If you do stay, get a lawyer. And no matter what, keep in mind that they're allowed to lie. And they consider it okay to lie. And it's an important and necessary part of their questioning, even though most first world countries now don't allow it. I know I say it all hmm. the time, but it yeah, never gets but... old. In any case, Finch finished off the interrogation at 11 p.m., 11 hours after it had started, Ugh. by arresting Carla for murder, even though he had no evidence against her. Oh and God. I believe, even though I got this from the lawsuit, that she did end up giving that false statement. And while I can't find her entire statement anywhere, Janetta's lawyers huh. point out some inconsistencies with the evidence. Forensic testing that was definitely not done this early in the case, even though it should have been, showed there was no tape residue on Plani's ankles, and the fact that stories nowadays still say his ankles were duct tape probably oh, come God. from Carla's statement which said Janetta bound his feet. She also said the cord used to strangle him was from a TV when it came from the fan in his bedroom. Also, it turned out much later, DNA found at the scene didn't match Carla's, Shondrick Williams, or Janetta Carr, something that was not disclosed after those three were arrested. The night of the murder, Carla and Janetta were hanging out at the Shondrick Williams house, and that's the house of Carla's boyfriend. There were a lot of people there, William's dad, Cedric, Cedric's girlfriend, Cindy, Whitley Hawkins, who I mentioned before, a friend of Chardet's and Janetta's, a guy named Big Mike, another one named oh. Steve, but not Steve Lewis, the suspect. This was a different Steve. Somebody named Amy and a bunch of other people. Carla, Chardet, Whitley, and Janetta all went out to a White Castle for a late snack. Well, they drove around a little and then got to White Castle around 1 a.m., and then returned to the house and went to bed. Janetta and Whitley shared the couch, and Chardet slept on the floor in the same room. Carla, Chandrick, Steve, and Big Mike all slept in the basement. Whitley, Chardet, and Janetta woke up around 9.30 a.m. the next morning, and Janetta left around 10.30 a.m. with Roger Dooley, another man that it says she was dating. I don't know, you know, if she was dating him or if he was just a friend. And that's a pretty tight alibi for Janetta, as well as for Shandrick and Carla. It's tough to get that many other people to effectively cover for you exactly. and keep your stories straight. And I think they did have evidence that they had gone to the White Castle. So what to do, what to do, as far as the police are concerned? You know, they're trying to get these people for murder. <laughs> they have no evidence against them. And now they've got an alibi. Mm -hmm. But the cops had a plan. Wow. Detective Lawson, who's also named in the suit, interviewed Whitley Hawkins on January 14, 2006. When I say interviewed, what I mean is he gave her a bunch of different theories about how various people supposedly committed the murder, and he encouraged her to implicate Janetta, Carla, and Chandrick. Oh, Whitley, though, wasn't having any of it. She told Lawson all the people who were at William's house that night, and she said um, that she, Janetta, Carla, and Chardray had driven around and gone to the White Castle, that she'd slept on the same couch as Janetta, and that Janetta couldn't have committed the murder because she was there all night. She told Lawson specifically that she was an alibi witness for Janetta and wasn't going to lie about it. Lawson, not to be mm. deterred, made up a false report saying that Whitley said she was a very sound sleeper and that she could not say whether mm. Janetta left or came back to the house that night. 
And not to put too fine a point on it, but Whitley had said the exact opposite, as we know, that oh, Janetta had no. never left the house. And she knew mm-hmm. for a fact Janetta hadn't murdered Planes. But since the cops had arrested Carla and they needed to back up her false statement, Lawson needed Whitley's statement to match that. Janetta was arrested January 6, 2006. She was still 16. Mm. Finch and Officer Hellinger interrogated Janetta after she was arrested. She maintained her innocence throughout the interrogation. Keep in mind, she was 16, a child, as the lawsuit points out. Finch threatened to put her in jail for life if she did not cooperate. Mm. He called her a murderer, a bitch, and a whore, and refused to let her call her mother. Despite all that, she maintained her innocence. She said she'd been at the Williams house the night of the murder, and she didn't know anything about it. She was charged and put in juvenile detention. She was 16, so too young to put in jail. Finally, on March 15, 2006, Finch got around to sending the physical evidence to the Kentucky State Police for examination. And at this point, Carla, Janetta, and Chandrick Williams had all been arrested and charged and were put in jail. Yet, the evidence had not been (laughs) tested. I can't believe they were charged. Uh, Whatever. You will be able to believe it as we get into this. So on March 15th, he sent the evidence to the Kentucky State Police. He got the results back on September 29th, 2006. And let's take a look at the results. DNA from the cord used to strangle Planes was a mixture, and some of it was likely his. In other words, it couldn't be excluded as his, according to the testing. But you know who could be excluded, according <laughs> to the testing? Johnetta, Chandrick, oh, and Carla. Quote, this result means that there was more than one DNA profile on the cord, and the victim could have contributed one profile, but none of the three wrongfully convicted individuals could have contributed, the lawsuit hmm. says. Finch believed that pieces of the packing tape found at the crime scene had been used to bind Plane's wrists and ankles. And that was pure supposition. They were just pieces of crumbled up, and it was packing tape, not duct tape, like you read about later. Since he believed that, it was in Carla's false statement that it had been used. Exactly. But forensic testing revealed that there was no adhesive residue on Plane's ankles. And huh. the fact that recent articles and even um, a couple summaries of this case on exoneration website say that his ankles were duct taped is because this information was never introduced. Carla's false statement is still what people think happened in a lot of cases. Forensic testing also showed that a scraping from Plane's left wrist was inconsistent with the tape that was found at the crime scene. The scraping had off-white adhesive that was different than the gray adhesive from the pieces of tape found at the scene, so it was from something else. The DNA found on the artificial fingernail at the crime scene contained an insufficient amount for analysis. None of the trio charged had any extra money that they would have gotten from a robbery, which police and Carla's false statement said was the reason for, for the attack, even though the police never recovered the cell phone, wallet, or missing stereo from the cab. Carla's statement and ones from jailhouse snitches, which we'll talk about in a little while, because we have those two, you know, says that hmm. Chandrick stole Plani's car keys and dumped the cab somewhere. There was no DNA evidence, fingerprints, or anything else that connected Chandrick to the cab. There was also no evidence explaining why he'd take it or dump it where hmm. he did, a place he had no familiarity with, a part of town he, he didn't know anything about, or any explanation how he got home, which was miles away. And, remember, two residents of the apartment complex said they saw the cab there around 10 p.m. that night. So not only was there absolutely no physical evidence at all to tie any of the three to the crime scene, a lot of it didn't match the false statement Finch picked up for Carla. (laughs) 
But now mm. it's September. These guys have been in jail, charged with this murder for nine or ten months. So, hmm, what to do? One thought I had is that if you follow the evidence, you don't have to get into a pickle like this. But what do no I know? shit. And the cops could have said, whoop, our bad, let the kids out of jail, and use the evidence they had now to build a case around, I don't know, maybe Steve Lewis? But no, like mm-hmm. cops all over America have for centuries, they doubled down. And like I said, what's a false conviction case without some jailhouse snitches thrown in? On November 16, 2006, mm. Finch put together a statement for inmate Lori Deckard. Janetta supposedly confessed to Deckard that she'd been mad at Planace and used Carla's cell phone to call him. Janetta later said she didn't know this woman. Then Janetta got Carla to drive her and Chandrick to Planace's apartment. They got into an argument with him, then robbed him. Chandrick told Carla to get the cord while Janetta found some tape. Carla, the statement again says that the cord was from the TV when it was actually from a fan. Carla and Janetta taped Planace, then Chandrick strangled him. Then they grabbed his cell phone and keys and inexplicably dragged him outside. Chandrick took the cab and dumped it somewhere, and Janetta and Carla left in Carla's car. Hmm. The lawsuit says Finch forced Deckard to go along with the false statement, but doesn't elaborate on how he forced her to. It was the third one he'd managed to get so far in this case. Inmates April Sharp and Dana Lauder gave statements against Carla in February and March. Those two were used when the when grand jury time came around in April, before the evidence testing came back, of course. Finch did some classic test line before the grand jury. And again, <laughs> someone needs to explain to me why cops hardly ever get nailed for perjury on this stuff. He presented no Carla's shit. Uh, Yeah, I know. He presented Carla's statement as well as the two jailhouse snitch statements that purportedly backed up Carla's story. On April 27, 2006, a grand jury returned an indictment against Janetta, who was charged with one count of murder, one count of burglary, one count of robbery, and one count of tampering with physical evidence. Carl and Chandrick were also indicted. And the reason that the story is more about Janetta than those two is because she's the one I have the information on. And you'll see mm-hmm. more why later. Um, Chandrick is still in prison. I'm not sure whether Carla is or not. I couldn't find anything out. By the way, Deckard's statement wasn't the first false jailhouse snitch statement that Finch got for the case, but it wasn't the last either. In January mm-hmm. 2007, he fabricated a statement from jailhouse informant Raymond Jeffries implicating Chandrick Williams. So now he had jailhouse snitches corroborating Carla's false statement. Needless to say, Johnetta, Carla, and Chandrick all said they never confessed anything to any of these inmates because they didn't have anything to do with it. The lawsuit says, This pattern was not by chance, but rather part of a larger pattern of fabricating false statements for jailhouse informants that existed for decades within the Mm. Louisville Police Department to frame innocent people for crimes they did not commit. And more on that later. As Janetta's case neared trial time, the fabricated evidence against her stacked up. There was Carla's statement with jailhouse snitches backing it up. There was Janetta's own jailhouse snitch with her false statement. There was the false statement about Janetta's alibi that Officer Lawson had cooked up when Whitley Hawkins wouldn't let go of the alibi. The police never disclosed the physical evidence and phone records that excluded Janetta. They never disclosed Whitney Hawkins had a different story than what the false statement that the Lawson made up said. They never disclosed they had another suspect, Steve Lewis, but abandoned that investigation once they got Carla's false statement. The prosecutors told Johnetta that they planned to pursue the death penalty against Williams. Oh my god. They said they wouldn't accept guilty pleas from any of the three defendants. 
the implication being Chandrick could avoid death row by pleading guilty, but they wouldn't accept guilty pleas from any of the three defendants unless they all agreed to plead guilty. And I got this from the National Registry of Exonerations, which has a summary of the case. And if any of you are wondering what the point is of that threat, it's that if they plead guilty, they don't have to go to trial. A trial would have possibly, but not necessarily, dismantled the corrupt house of cards that had been built. Mm-hmm. Also, once you start presenting all this false stuff at trial, once found out, the penalties theoretically are a lot worse for the prosecutors. And also because of discovery, even though they held back all that evidence, again, the penalties would have been more if they got found out and some of it may have come up. So they were better off having them all plead guilty and not having to, you know, letting them get their day in court. And by the way, there's no information I can find anywhere on who her lawyer was or who represented the other two. My best guess, it was a public defender um, who didn't have the resources to find out if any of the stuff was true. Mm -hmm. Johnetta took an Alford plea in May 2008 Mm. to second-degree manslaughter, conspiracy to commit robbery, and conspiracy to commit burglary and tampering with physical evidence. An Alford plea, for those of you who are unaware is that the defendant maintains innocence but acknowledges there's enough evidence to convict. So it's the same thing as a guilty plea without admitting guilt. Quote, The false and fabricated evidence against her seemed insurmountable, and the defendants conspired, and by the defendants, this is the lawsuit, they mean the cops, conspired to withhold their egregious misconduct, the suit says. And by the way, if you enter an Alford plea or plead guilty, you can't appeal. Johnetta had been incarcerated in juvenile detention in the two years and four months since she had been arrested. She was sentenced to 20 years in prison as an adult. Mm. At some point when she was in prison in Otter Creek Correctional Complex, she was called into the office and a jailhouse informant, the implication is that it's Deckard who Finch pressured into making up the fact Johnetta confessed to her, but the National Registry of Exonerations doesn't say who it was. The informant told Johnetta that the police had told her to lie and say that Johnetta had confessed. The informant said that she would write a letter on Janetta's behalf, although it's unclear if she did or who she was writing to. Quote, I didn't know her before I went to jail, and I really didn't know her while in jail, Janetta said. So many lies were told on me. It's not clear if this is why she was released from prison on December 19th, 2009, after serving 18 months beyond the two-plus years she'd been in juvenile detention. If there was some awareness, though, that her conviction was false, no one was saying anything about it. She then had to serve 10 years of parole. For anyone who thinks that that's a cakewalk, her sentence and the parole, keep in mind, first, that she's innocent. And second, once you have a conviction, any felony conviction, it affects your future in every possible way, from finding housing to getting a job to taking out loans to getting student aid. In Kentucky, up until December 2019, people who had been convicted of a felony couldn't vote. You still can't, in Kentucky, get a professional license or certification or serve on a jury if you've been convicted. So, among other things, Janetta, even though she was out, couldn't pursue the plan she'd had at 16 of becoming a paralegal because you can't get a professional license. Many of these laws, by the way, came about as a way to suppress black people and other people who aren't white, indigenous, um, Latino, who make up a disproportionate amount of those incarcerated. I'm not going to get into a whole history lesson now, but I think it's important to note that, as we've said before, black people are more targeted, laws are used against them or created to make them a bigger part of the, quote, crime rate, unquote. And remember several episodes ago when I told the story about the guy in Lynn, Massachusetts, who was sitting on his own porch having a beer, 
mm-hmm. and ended up being arrested and charged with resisting arrest and a bunch of other things that if he'd been a white guy sitting on his porch drinking a beer, none of which would have happened. It, that happens all over the country all the time. The same goes for what happens after they get arrested, particularly the limits placed on you if you have a felony conviction, the inability to get a job and everything afterwards, and voting rights is a big part of that. A lot of it is designed to keep the um, system that we that we have in place that keeps minorities in their quote-unquote place. But even the most resistant people to the notion of systemic racism has to see how the spiral that a conviction sends a person into, both financially and option-wise, whether they're innocent or guilty, makes it nearly impossible to improve their lives. And on top of it all, there are a variety of fees and costs a person who's gotten out of prison has to pay before any of their rights can be restored. Good luck with doing all that if you can't get a job. And here's what Janetta had to say about it in December 2019. And Mm. I got this from her Facebook page, which is mostly private, but this was a public post. It took one single false police coerced confession to ruin my life and take my rights and freedom away. Two years in juvenile detention with laid over court dates every week awaiting a trial, half a year in adult jail and a year in prison, a total of 13 years of my life fighting all for a crime I had nothing to do with. Being falsely convicted was by far the worst thing I have ever been through in my life, but I know I went through it for a reason. It's not clear what Janetta did for the first 10 years after she got out of prison. As I said, despite the news value of this story, there's little information available. And we'll come back to what's happened in the last year in a few minutes. There's a lot of blame to go around, but the biggest villain by far in this was Detective Tony Finch lead detective on the case. At the time he was harassing and working to falsely convict Janetta, Carla, and uh, Shandrick Williams, Finch was also having, let's say, marital problems or um, mm. post-marital problems. Beginning in 2005 and through 2008, Finch stalked and harassed his ex-wife Pamela, mm. also a Louisville police officer, resulting in him pleading guilty to 112 counts of stalking, harassment, oh official misconduct, and perjury in 2009. Finch threatened his ex-wife with a knife after following her after she visited a friend's house. He threatened her by phone when she was traveling out of state. He used detective credentials to access phone numbers and personal information of people he believed were associating with her and also to get people to talk to him about her. He repeatedly made harassing phone calls to her and a friend and used police department computers to view webcams of a hotel where she was staying on a vacation. According to a Louisville Courier-Journal story when he was first charged, one of the things he did was use a service that traces phone calls to see who she'd been calling. Then he tried to get the fee for the service waived because he was a police detective. He also ran license plate searches on his detective computer for people whose cars he saw at her place or her wit. He was indicted on 110 charges and ended up pleading guilty to 112 after the perjury was thrown in. That was in 2009, and he retired after that. You know, and all this was going on when he was also working up his case against um, Johnetta and Carla and Chandrick. On a more general level, as lawsuit charges, his bosses knew that Finch had destroyed exculpatory evidence in other felony investigations. Quote, Yet municipal defendants, that means the police department and other bosses named in the suit, never conducted a meaningful investigation into his misconduct, never disciplined him, and did not ensure he was more closely supervised despite the obvious risk he posed, leaving him free to act with impunity. But Finch wasn't alone. 
The suit says, The investigative misconduct that led to plaintiff's arrest, indictment, malicious prosecution, wrongful conviction, and imprisonment was not an anomaly. Rather, it was simply the way Louisville police closed cases. From the suit and media accounts, not including John Etta, there have been five men convicted after Louisville police investigations who have since been freed because they were wrongfully convicted in the past 15 years. Freed in the past 15 years, not necessarily convicted. William Gregory, who was wrongfully convicted on two counts of rape, and for murder, Jeffrey Clark, Keith Harden, Edwin Chandler, and Carrie Porter. So that's six wrongful convictions that we know of in one city in Mm -hmm. the past 20 or so years, or 30 years if you count when some of these guys went to jail. It's cost the city a lot of money. The most recent one was Porter, who won a $7.5 million lawsuit in 2018, with Finch as one of the defendants. Johnetta's lawsuit says that before, during, and since her case, the city and the Louisville Metro Police Department maintained a policy, custom, or pattern and practice of promoting, facilitating, and condoning improper, illegal, and unconstitutional investigative techniques by the police department's investigators, including, but not limited to, fabricating evidence, failing to promptly document and disclose exculpatory and impeachment evidence to prosecutors, destroying evidence, failing to investigate known exculpatory evidence and otherwise failing to conduct constitutionally adequate investigations, disregarding the 5th and 14th Amendment rights of criminal suspects and defendants, and engaging in the ongoing affirmative concealment and cover-up of police misconduct. The city and police department also failed to train cops on fundamental investigation tasks implicating the constitutional rights (laughs) of witnesses and suspects, including but not limited to conducting witness identification procedures, including photo arrays and live lineups, maintaining physical evidence and accurately documenting investigative work, documenting and promptly disclosing exculpatory and impeachment evidence to prosecutors, conducting constitutionally adequate investigations with objectivity rather than with tunnel vision, and conducting custodial interrogations and witness interviews. That's all stuff they didn't train them on. Certainly, by 2005, it was a well-established legal principle and a fundamental tenet of responsible police practices that fabricating evidence against a suspect violates the suspect's constitutional rights, the lawsuit points out. Nonetheless, the city and police department failed either to supervise their police to ensure they did not fabricate evidence or to discipline them when they did. The lawsuit says, quote, These municipal failures create an environment of impunity in which fabricating evidence was tacitly and sometimes explicitly authorized. The same day John Etta's lawsuit was filed, on December 8, 2020, Lovey and Lovey, the hmm. law firm, filed one on behalf of Keith West, who also claims a wrongful conviction at the hands of the Louisville Metro Police Department. West's case, as well as Clark Harden and Chandler, some of the guys I mentioned above, all involved misconduct by a former homicide detective named Mark Handy, who wasn't involved in Janetta's case. It would be a whole nother episode to talk about everything Handy did, but hmm. the record shows he got away with it for a long time. I'll note some of the highlights. Mm. Handy, who went to work for the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department after his Louisville Metro PD stint and retired in 2019, pleaded guilty last June to perjury for testifying about Chandler, one of the wrongfully convicted guys, to a grand jury. Chandler spent nine years in prison for the 1993 murder of Brenda Whitfield and was cleared in 2009 with the help of then-new fingerprint technology. 
Louisville paid Chandler $8.5 million. In that lawsuit, Chandler's lawyer showed that Handy fed Chandler facts to use in his coerced confession, facts that weren't publicly available, and they taped over surveillance video that might have pointed to the real killer. Jeez. Handy was indicted in 2018 for not only lying in Chandler's case, but also for tampering with physical evidence in uh, West's case. It was another tape and over stuff thing. The West charge was dropped, apparently as part of a plea bargain. But the indictment didn't, because the city and police department had a pang of conscience. It took a special prosecutor, Shane Young, only four hours last year to decide Handy should be charged. And yes, that's years after the malfeasance came to light. Young, according to an August hmm. Courier-Journal story, said he asked the U.S. Justice Department to investigate why Handy wasn't prosecuted earlier. It was recommended by an internal investigation in 2009 that Handy be prosecuted for perjury, but Commonwealth's attorney Dave Stengel at the time declined. The issue was hmm. later reviewed by the U.S. Attorney's Office, which also declined, and by Stengel's successor, Tom Wine, who in 2016 said there wasn't enough evidence to win a conviction. Please. The Metro Council, I, I assume that's the Louisville City Council, in 2018 voted to ask then-Kentucky Attorney General Andy Brashear to appoint a special prosecutor, and he assigned Young, who was the Hardin County Commonwealth Attorney, to the case. Two months later, the grand jury indicted Handy, the Courier-Journal reported. Unfortunately, that story was in August, and it said a trial had been set for October of last year, and I can't find anything else on the Courier Journal's hmm. website about it, <laughs> WTF. But the last story about it was he just wanted probation, and they were saying he should serve some jail time. You know, he wrongly convicted and sent Fucking at least him. three men so far to prison for crimes they didn't commit. Um, I think he could serve a little t jail time. I don't know if he has or not. In any case, Handy was the lead detective and two other of the wrongfully convicted guys I mentioned earlier, Hardin and Clark, who were convicted in 1992 of killing Rhonda Warford. In that trial, Handy testified that Hardin admitted sacrificing animals as part of a satanic ritual <sighs> and later decided that he wanted to, quote, do a human. You know, that was during <sighs> the satanic panic. So, again, a false confession on that. As the wrongful convictions came to light and went back to court, a judge ruled in 2016 that Handy wasn't credible, citing his, his mis misconduct in the Chandler case and other cases. The judge granted a new trial for Hardin and Clark, who had served 22 years in prison. They were granted a new Jesus. trial, but they were not retried. It was dismissed. In all of the false conviction cases that have resulted in exonerations in Louisville, the cops, whether Handy or someone else, fabricated confessions or witness testimony, coerced people into lying, destroyed evidence, and more. William Gregory, one of the other false convictions, the one who was convicted of two rapes, also won a lawsuit. He had served seven years on two rape counts before he was proven innocent. In his case, two detectives in 1992 fed him information he couldn't have hmm. otherwise known, then got him to make a false confession. After Handy falsely told him he'd failed a polygraph, he re-techniqued him into confessing. As with Gregory Hardin and Clark, Handy and others fed Chandler facts about the case that hadn't been made public to make his confession more credible. With Carrie Porter, another of the wrongfully convicted men, he's the one who won the 2018 lawsuit and got $7.5 million. Officers, including Finch, fed jailhouse snitches information about the crime and withheld information that one of the snitches was a longtime paid informant 
for the police department. They'd paid him to provide evidence in more than a hundred other cases. Porter's wrongful conviction only came to light when the Louisville Courier-Journal found information that there was evidence, including DNA, that someone else had committed the murder. That wasn't a surprise to the police. Their cold case squad had found out about it years earlier, but had withheld that information, too. Oh, my God. E. Douglas Hamilton... A Louisville Metro Police Department chief from the 1990s testified at one of these suits that back then officers were confused about their Brady mm-hmm. duties. But despite all the lawsuits, the city and police department never did anything to train them on their Brady duties or make sure they got it right. And it just kept happening. In 2006, right in the middle of the so-called investigation of Planes Adolfi's murder... A judge found that in the case of Gregory, the guy falsely convicted of two rapes, that the city was deliberately indifferent as far as training officers on Brady and other disclosure laws. So obviously they didn't learn much, despite Hmm. the constant issues and the avalanche of false convictions and the millions they've had to pay. In December 2019, Janetta asked Governor Matt Bevan, who was leaving office for a pardon, and this was right around the time her 10 years of parole had ended. In her application, she said, My record makes life difficult for me, and I hate having to explain to people that I was convicted for this crime I didn't do. It's awful for people to think that you killed your boyfriend when you did not. Bevins issued the pardon, calling her on the phone to give her the news in person, which she described as the best day Hmm. of her life. In the official pardon paper, you know, the official thing that people read, Bevin said, Janetta Carr is a very strong and motivated woman with a very bright future in front of her. I am confident that she will contribute in powerful ways to society as a whole and to her community. Then he said, God clearly has his hand on her. Oh, God. He's described as a devout Christian. Okay. He didn't acknowledge the false conviction, which by that time had been talked about publicly and she made no secret of. Not being a devout Christian, I can't speak for what he means there about God having his hands on her. But I'd say having your life destroyed by a false conviction has very little to do with God and a lot to do with man being corrupt, racist, and incompetent. Mm -hmm. He didn't pardon Carla Sowers or Chandrick Williams, who is still in prison, though it's not clear if they asked. The Louisville Courier-Journal, quote-unquote, uncovered that Bevins had issued 428 pardons and commutations in his final weeks in office in 2019. Hmm. A lot of those were for people with just with, who just had drug offenses. Kind of a blanket if, you only, if all you had was a drug offense pardoned. A lot of the focus of the coverage seemed to be on the criminals that were going to be back on the streets making everybody nervous rather than why the pardons were issued. From I Granted, I didn't read all their stories, although the December 20th... 2019 story that mentions Johnetta says what reporters found were several recurring themes in Bevan's orders, including alleged court injustices, forgiveness hmm. for poor decision making, recognition of offenders with strong family ties, and redemption through service to communities. But a pardon doesn't erase a false conviction. So a year after that, last December 2020, Johnetta filed her lawsuit. And like I said, she wants a jury trial. I'm a little confounded that in the months since Janetta filed the suit and her pardon, no one has done a profile of her or spent much time looking at her case. CNN also did a pardon story and she told them, that phone call from Bevins changed my life. That nightmare's kind of over, she said. The CNN story noted that the incarceration rate in Kentucky is higher than the national incarceration rate 
getting its info from the Prison Policy Initiative. Kentucky also has the second highest imprisonment rate for women, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. I looked it up myself. Kentucky incarcerates 431 white people for every 100,000 residents and 1,411 black people for every 100,000 residents. So that's a 3.3 to 1 ratio. Mm. Susan Hopf, the director of the Kentucky Innocent Project, told CNN that they'd submitted summaries to Bevins of the cases they thought were the most deserving of a pardon or commutation. Quote, I do think the pardon process was perhaps with more reason and care than people assume, Hopf said, because Bevins was being so criticized for the people he'd let out. Kentucky likes people in jail. They like to incarcerate them, especially if they're black. The Innocent Project clients who were pardoned, and the story didn't say how many of them, how many of the people pardoned were Innocent Project clients, and I can't find that information anywhere, had shown, quote, several decades of good behavior, either in institutions or on home release or parole. The Courier-Journal won a Pulitzer Prize for its series of stories digging into the pardons. And as it should have, it was a lot of work. But the ones I read didn't seem to question the wrongful conviction aspect much, despite the number of wrongful convictions the city itself has dealt with and the articles on police corruption they've done. Because you have to wonder, how many of the convictions in Kentucky, particularly of black people, indigenous people, and other non-whites, are legit? You know, you look at Carla Sowers and Chandrick Williams. They're as innocent as Janetta Carr. And nobody's trying to pardon them or exonerate them or get them out, as far as I can tell. So that's something I'd like to see an award-winning series on. A report issued January 27th of this year, commissioned by the city after the Breonna Taylor case, that's episode 77, if you're not familiar, (laughs) calls for 155 steps the city needs to take to reform its police department. Many of them are based on race and how people are dealt with, how people who are arrested are dealt with. The Courier-Journal has reported on it, and I'll do an update maybe next episode once I have time to look at it. But I think that's a great place for the newspaper to start doing its own digging, not to tell them how to do their jobs. I'm just frustrated that there's so little, you know, there is so little either in newspapers.com or on their website. Nothing about these kids. Some short stories about Carla Sowers, and that was it. Um, And one when Johnetta was arrested, and and then until, until Johnetta was pardoned. In December 2019, and then nothing about her again until the lawsuit last December. But in the meantime, before they start doing their stories on that, here's something people can mull over. I know people are like, everyone in prison says they're innocent, or some of you probably still are. You know, maybe people in prison, maybe everyone in prison says that, maybe they don't, I don't know. But we do know that in America... Black people are arrested more, they're charged more, they're given longer and harsher sentences, and, at least judging from Louisville's wrongful conviction exonerations, which is all we have to go by, they're railroaded more, too. Mm. Here are the biggest things, according to the National Innocence Project, that lead to wrongful convictions. Eyewitness misidentification, Mm. improper forensics, false confessions, and informants and snitches. It doesn't say police malfeasance, but I have to believe that, at least in Louisville, that's a big part of it. The Kentucky Innocent Project website says, quote, While wrongful conviction statistics point out the weaknesses and shortcomings of the criminal justice system, its greatest strength is its ability to adapt. The system includes means by which improvements can be made, 
Systemic changes must be made in order to minimize the chances that an innocent person will be convicted of a crime and sent to prison for something they did not do. As unlikely as many people want to believe the conviction of innocence to be, innocent people have been sent to prison in Kentucky. Reform of the criminal justice system is necessary to prevent future wrongful convictions in the Commonwealth. Uh Additionally, when an innocent person is convicted, the guilty party remains free to continue to prey Uh upon society. Therefore, any reform must include the goal of identifying, investigating, and prosecuting the truly guilty individual. Janetta plans to return to school, the plan that was interrupted in 2005. She told CNN, the only place I could find where anyone asked her, that she wants to pursue a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. On her Facebook page after the pardon, she wrote, God used what I went through to mark my destiny. The fight is over for me, but there are still thousands of people in America sitting in jails and prisons for crimes they are innocent of. To those people and their family members, please do not give up the fight for justice and your freedom back. But obviously the fight wasn't over for her. The pardon, like I said, doesn't keep her from having to explain to people that she was wrongfully convicted, not just pardoned of a crime that she, you know, committed. On a Zoom news conference in December that her attorneys held to announce the lawsuit, Janetta said, It's not okay to take people's lives for crimes they did not commit. It's not okay for police officers to commit crimes against people and have no accountability for their actions. I also want the families of anybody who's been affected by injustice due to the system who's watching this to not give up hope and to keep fighting for yourself and your loved ones. The truth will always come to light. Hmm. I think she's a little optimistic. I don't think it will. But that doesn't mean that people shouldn't try harder. And it seems like sometimes they're just not trying at all. And that is my story. Well, thank you. Not only are the guilty people still out there, but which we talked about, the cops or other people who are breaking the law and ruining people's lives are getting off without... Yes. Without any kind of punishment. And and I think maybe if some of them, if we took that more seriously, this would happen a lot less. But they, they can just do whatever they want, and then there's no repercussions for that. I agree. Like, it took so like, that handy guy, they had to be hit over the fucking head before they did anything about him, and they still didn't want to because there were just so many wrongful convictions tied to him. And the thing is, when you think of how hard it is, I, some people probably think it's easy to get a wrongful conviction exoneration but it's not like the innocent project they get tons of requests and can only do a few you think of how many people this was just their practice of manufacturing evidence of making shit up yeah it's almost impossible to get your conviction overturned or to get a new trial it's it's, once you're in jail it's very similar to our episode 29 wicked bad chemistry and Mm. then our subsequent talk about the state doesn't have they don't have the desire to to find out how many wrongful convictions there are because that's going to open a can of worms and they just exactly. don't want to deal with it. So exactly. it's easier to just pretend it's not happening right? or that it's a you know one bad actor when we know damn well that it's the it's systemic. And this is at the very foundation of like Black Lives Matter. And when people talk about systemic racism, I know there's people out there who still don't recognize it or see it, but Black Lives Matter isn't only about police shooting black people. It's about how the white cops 
and the case I talked about today and so many others just don't give a shit about the people. They don't even see them as people. And also the misogyny, too. Oh, yeah. Besides, you know, that you can take a 16-year-old girl. In fact, not to go off on a tangent, but when that little girl in Rochester, New York, the nine-year-old, was cuffed and um, pepper sprayed by police Mm. a little while back, I read an article, I can't remember where, about how studies show that people don't see black females yes as yes, their age yes like remember how i older yes. like i say to you whenever one of those things happens why is it always a black girl that you see mm-hmm. cops mistreating uh, like no that? it's true there have been studies with- and like when that little girl was treated like that the cop was like you're acting like a child and the little girl's like well i am a child you know <laughs> with janetta she was 16 years old finch is calling her a whore in a in a bitch and won't let her mother come i feel like there also it need to be laws that you can't interrogate a minor without a parent there no and how how much did any of these kids understand their rights that they didn't have to sit there and listen to this well i think that may not just a parent i think without a court um appointed representative yeah because your parent still might might not have your best in- like i remember when i worked for a lawyer kids that were in trouble with stuff their parents would always want them to do stuff that might not be in their best interest right you know because they thought it was the right thing to do or something right. and the cops think the kids may not talk if their parents are there and they would otherwise whatever but the bigger issue is the cops Treated the justice system like it's their little playground. That's right. Acting with impunity, knowing that they were never going to get called on it, that they could just screw people over, and f- and the amount of false <laughs> statements and I know shit and, and enough. There's no, there's nothing. No accountability. No. And, and they know there isn't going to be, and even now, there isn't. And I know people say all the time, well, there's only a few bad cops and there's mostly good cops. But when good cops let this shit happen, and it's not only in Louisville, Kentucky, read the Boston Globe, just Google Boston Globe police mm-hmm. and see what they've written recently about the test lying and everything else. Part of the issue is even the quote-unquote good cops think a lot of this is okay. They think yeah. lying in an interrogation is okay. Well, I don't the, know in what... Yeah, the what ways in, justify the means. Right. I don't know in what investigation world charging three people before you've even, even had the evidence tested is good police work. I don't even see how that's allowed. Like, not well, just the police, but the well. That's the one reason. Attorney. That's one reason why they're they're the seven police officers aren't that's the only right. ones being sued because mm-hmm. because they were allowed after all the signs for for decades that they were fucking things up. Everybody just let it happen, and yeah. and even now, cops aren't disciplined. They aren't. No. You know, it has to be really extreme, a really extreme case. Exactly. Just the fact, all that shit that was going on with his ex-wife while this was going on. I know. He, he shouldn't have even been doing cases. I know. And Ugh. while he wasn't charged with it till I think, 2008. I'm surprised Don't he was tell charged. me people didn't know it wasn't going on. I know. In any case, and I think Janetta's case is one because of the pardon and because of the lawsuit she's in the news but there are mm. hundreds of Janetta's and Chandrick Williams and Carla Sowers yeah. all across the United States it's scary and well, thank people you for have your to start report. giving a shit yeah you're welcome 
You have a recommendation, right? Yes, I do. <laughs> oh, before I give my recommendation, I want to tell you that I watched all four episodes of The Lady and the Dale. I binged them, kind of. I, oh. I watched them in two sittings. Is that what you're doing your recommendation on? No. Okay. Because um, you already did yours. I just wanted to tell you that I yeah, did watch Well, it I wanted you'd... to say when I did mine, I'd only watched the first three episodes, and I'd watched the fourth since... Mm -hmm. and it doesn't change my rating. I do want to say in the fourth episode, they did connect some of the dots, particularly the the issues about being trans and stuff, yes. and the way, the way that affected law enforcement's attitudes towards Elizabeth. It kind of teaches me a lesson that I shouldn't do a rating until I've watched an entire series. Yes. But, well, um, but what did you think of one. it? I liked it very much and Dad watched the last three with me. He was oh. very upset because before the fourth one I said well I'm going to turn it off now. We can finish watching it tomorrow and he oh. wanted to watch the end of it. Too bad he didn't watch the first one because it had so much 1950s stuff I in know. it. I know. He was but did you, did you by the animation. I love the animation. Like did you agree did. with me that it was it was just so good. yeah i really yeah. liked it i don't want to spoil too much for people who haven't watched it in the fourth episode that reporter Ugh. in austin who did the um story like on her him. i don't want people to think that that's considered good journalism not that there shouldn't have been a story but that i would never if i were writing a story about someone's business I, now I work for business publication, but as a newspaper reporter, I would not cold call them as the last thing. I would call them on the, I mean, go to their house and knock on the door. I would call them on the phone and say, I'd like to talk to you. I've been talking to people who work for you, blah, blah, blah. And I would like to talk to you. And some of his attitudes were the same as- Oh, I thought it like, was horrible. To Carlson. Yes. But also he did just some unethical journalism stuff. He was stuff. unethical and just the fact, yeah. And, and he doesn't see it. And his, you know, the fact anything, that, Even now he doesn't see right, anything. The fact that in 2021, you don't understand about pronouns- yeah. You know, he, she, whatever. <laughs> and this guy's probably our age, I'm guessing. Yeah. No, he wasn't it's that old. unacceptable. And, and I like the Ugh. way they, they like, He's merged, like, Tucker like Carlson and, and his father. To... Yes. Ugh. Uh, um, but I'm glad you liked it. So, yes, you just had that, your little lesson that you learned about not reviewing something when when you're not finished watching it, and I am going to be doing that right now. So. Okay. <laughs> so I might adjust my, my rating next time, but I don't know. So what I'm going to be reviewing... Hey, we, it, make, we make the rules and we can do whatever right. we want. That's right. I can do whatever the fuck I want. What I'm reviewing is crime scene the vanishing at the cecil hotel which was on netflix and i'm assuming by the title that maybe this is gonna be kind of a series of maybe. before you get into i was gonna watch that and then i read a review in the la times mm -hmm. by a reviewer i respect and i decided mm. if i watch it it isn't gonna be right away. well you, maybe you should respect my review well let let's since you know me so we'll go through our negative nellies but what it's about anybody that listens to any podcasts on the internet have probably heard of the of the elisa lamb case and i didn't almost wasn't gonna watch this because I was just like, ugh. And then I'm like, yeah, I'll watch it. Why not? You know, I might as well watch it because I'd heard so many things, different stories about it. And and I remember when it happened. And so we'll talk about it a little bit later 
after I go through the negative Nellie's rating. Okay. So bad reenactments, I'm taking a half a point off. There aren't a lot of reenactments, and they are kind of those kind of fuzzy, kind of like they did in uh, the Keepers, Mm. where they're kind of like, you know, not people acting it out. They're just kind of like images, impressions of things. Yes. But they're very repetitive. They show the same thing over and over, Mm. and I don't think they're necessary. So why Uh, only half a point instead of a point? I don't know. I was trying to be nice mm, um, because I took a lot of uh, narrative cliches, half a point off. The reason, <laughs> one reason I'm taking this half a point off is for you oh, because you. there was a tea kettle whistling yes. and tea being poured. And well, I thought that's actually the, yeah. the 11th, the tea kettle. Yes, I know that's for you, but not me, because okay. it doesn't really bother me that much, okay. although it's very cliche at this point. But otherwise, it, uh, so far not, I didn't see many, not the usual narrative cliches. Right. I, it really didn't, that was the only thing. Um, racial gender obtuseness, no. Lack of good visuals, no. Actually, the visuals I kind of liked. There's a lot of that drone footage of the Cecil Hotel, which I thought was cool and of skid row which is where the cecil hotel is located you know it was very nicely photographed i thought that part of it was good missing pieces i'm taking away one i'd take Mm. away more if i could and maybe i'll amend this next week when i've seen episode four but one thing i'll say next episode we always say next week and what we mean is next episode. yes next next episode there are four episodes and i was i'm almost done with the third but one thing that really is annoying me is first of all i know they're trying to tell the story in a certain way to give you some kind of suspense maybe or whatever but they don't mention that um elisa lamb was bipolar until late in the second episode and i already knew she was bipolar because i had i'd read that I don't want anyone to think that I'm putting down someone with, who's bipolar. Right. I have known several people who are bipolar, and when they don't take their, if they're not taking their medications correctly, th- stuff can happen. Right. And they can act weird, and they can make decisions that aren't rational. So I think that was something that was relevant, and right. that they knew about early, I think they knew about it fairly early on in the yeah, case. Yeah, when something like that in a series or something like that is held back just for dramatic purposes. I feel like it's false drama. Yes, and it's annoying. And so the other thing that they still haven't resolved that's very annoying to me, and I had heard this, I think, before, too, and something else I watched about her that was never answered for me, is that when she first was staying there, you know, it was kind of a youth hostel part of the hotel. They had a separate, I'll talk about it later, but she was staying in an area that she had two roommates that were girls. So they were three in a room and her two roommates apparently complained about her behavior for a couple days. And finally they moved Elisa to another complained room. Complained to they her or to No, the... to the management. Oh, okay. And so she was moved to a private room. But they don't say what they complained about, what she was doing. And that, to me, is extremely annoying. So I hope if they never bring that up again, it's going to piss me off. Because I want to know what what was she doing that was upsetting them? Like, was she acting really weird? Was she in a manic phase? That annoyed me. So I took a point off for that. Inaccuracy and anachronisms, no, not that I could see. 
storytelling, I'm taking half a point off. They have a bunch of interviews. Some of the people are relevant, but they also interview a bunch of internet sleuths mm. who I yeah. find to be fairly annoying and yeah. not helpful at all and not relevant. And sorry, internet sleuths, but they yeah, didn't really. That. No, you I'll, I'll keep going. Freshness, half a point off because I really haven't learned much new about the case from watching this and I feel like it's drawn out too long repetition half a point because it's repetitive like I said it's drawn out it's uh they say the same things over and over the same point Mm. is made over and over so that is also beating the drum one point off Mm. because I know the Cecil Hotel is doesn't have a good reputation. I know it's in a dangerous part of town. You've told me that about 20 million times. And also, because it's a, in a bad part of town, because it has almost always been kind of a flop house, and because it has 700 rooms, there's going to be a lot of deaths there. There's going to be a lot of mm-hmm. suicides, murders, and overdoses there. I already, that's, that's a given. Right. I mean, you can tell me that once, but I don't need to keep hearing what a horrible place right. it was. Well, one thing the L.A. Times, I'm trying to remember the review, but said, too, that they they try to work in, like, how the Cecil Hotel's history and all this, but they don't do a good job of it. No, no, they didn't. And it probably has a very interesting history. They do, and I did appreciate some of that. They had one woman they interviewed that was the, had been manager for 10 years, and I actually would have wished I had heard more about her background because I don't know how she came to be managing it because she hadn't worked in hotels before. So mm. I thought she was kind of interesting, and I felt bad for her too because it must have been a hell of a job. I'm giving it a 5.5, which is fairly oh. low on the negative Nellies. I don't not recommend it. Knowing the story, I liked seeing. It, they did show a lot of stuff. So I, I can't say I didn't enjoy it, and I am going to finish watching it. My Do they person, shed any new light at all? Not yet. No, no, mm. they haven't. Like I said, I don't want anyone who has... I mean, I've got my own mental illness issues, no, so I don't want anyone to think I'm disparaging it. But I do think that... I think that that's an important part of what was going on with her. And that video of her on the elevator, people make a big deal out of it. But she was acting. The only time they mentioned her being bipolar was in that one instance where they were quoting her Tumblr page where she kept kind of a journal thing where she says something like, I guess I'm bipolar. And that's the only thing. And so they didn't have any mental health professionals on. Instead, Mm. they have these internet expert saying that oh there's somebody must be somebody in the hallway she's talking no she could be just having some kind of psychotic break and i'm not saying that nobody did anything to her and because the only reason i don't think she jumped in the tank by herself which she could have done but the top was on it so somebody put the top back on see what my theory has always been is that she was having some kind of break, but somebody saw her as vulnerable. Yes, that's what I think. And that's what happened if the, But her. if the top hadn't been on it, it wouldn't have surprised me if she thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I went for a swim? You know, you don't know, because I felt bad for the poor maintenance guy. They interviewed him, the guy that found her body. After you watch the fourth episode, if they've broken any new ground, then maybe I'll watch it. I'm not mm-hmm. saying I'm never going to watch it, but my enthusiasm went down after I read that LA Well, I, I wasn't enthusiastic about it from the beginning, so I guess 
I just felt like, oh, I gotta review something. Maybe you know, I'll give this especially a try. since it has so many annoying, so many of the things that annoy me. The L.A. Times. I'm remembering now. Also, aside from the internet sleuths, mentioned some other talking heads that didn't need to be in it. Yeah, and I remember thinking, oh, that's like it, I just but find it so annoying. It's I think hard to watch. what outweighed it for me. The reason I'm saying. I'm giving it saying I would watch if you have any interest in it. It's just because I did like seeing, I like the visuals. I don't know why, but I really like those drone shots. And Skid Row is a fascinating place. It's kind of like Hamsterdam on the wire. It's like this containment system. You know, they want to keep all the ugliness of the city in this one little, you know, in this area. Well, it's actually not a little area. It's a fairly large area. They kind of keep people from leaving there, too. Like, if Mm -hmm. the cops see people wandering into other areas, they kind of usher them back. I think that the Cecil Hotel itself is very interesting. And, oh, what I was going to say about where she was staying in it, they were trying to get more business because, obviously... People don't want to stay there. They separated part of the hotel. So there are three floors that are called Stay on Main. And they market it to like tourists. And it's almost like a youth hostel type of thing. And that's the part Elisa was staying in. And it has a separate entrance. So it looks like it's different from the other part of the hotel. But they share the same elevator. Mm. And that's why at the beginning, someone said something like, oh, somebody that worked here noticed she was in a part of a hotel that residents aren't supposed to be in. So they told, asked her to leave. And I think that she had been going to the park, people who live there too. And Mm -hmm. that's part of their zoning requirement or something they have to it's kind of supposed to be for low-income people so it's Mm. that part is interesting and i i would like to hear more about that but the other thing i just wanted to add is there's this there's this european couple that were were staying there they they're the ones that were making tea and they were talking to them they were staying there after she was missing and they were they were drinking the water okay so if you were staying in this disgusting place, like they thought their room was gross, but they were like, oh, well, you know, it's cheap. And we, we came here to see the I sights. don't drink tap water in a hotel, yes, no matter no where shit. it is. No shit. Ne- me neither. But especially not if it's brown. Yeah. The woman's like, oh, yeah. that was just, it tasted horrible. It's yeah, like, because well, you were drinking you, a dead why body. Do you, why do you keep drinking it then? For, and like, for, the, for the listeners who don't know, her body was found in a water tank on top of the hotel that fed hotels water system and people started complaining about the water yes and that is did. why they found and that's how the poor maintenance guy found her i do recommend it if you're familiar with the case it is problematic the reason i liked it is because i was able to see stuff yeah i'll I, probably that's watch the only it reason I, a lot of times i like to watch at some point and it will annoy you but you know mm-hmm. And, but, yeah, you know, so I have to wait for the, a time when I can when I can deal with being annoyed. But I do feel bad for her poor pa- her poor yeah. parents and well, I sister. I feel bad for her. Too, they had yeah. the press conference. Well, yes, I feel bad for her. But they had the press conference and they didn't speak. The guy said at the beginning of it, the cop or whoever who was running it said they're not going to speak. But they look so sad. Yeah. They were so sad. Mm. Anyway. I guess we should so I'm night. up next yeah. time yep. Yep. I don't know next. what I'm gonna be doing as usual yeah. but okay. I'm sure it will be interesting if you like what you've heard you can always review us yes give us a good review yeah give us a review don't tell us that we're not factual let's move on yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're so fucking factual it should make people's heads spin no shit you know they what can't I'm handle the truth right god damn it fuck that 
Anyway. Anyways. Okay, well, you have a good night, and everybody have a good night. Two yeah, weeks. And, and you can find us at Crime and Stuff Online, and on Twitter and um, Facebook. and um, Yeah, all that jazz. All that jazz. Okay. Thank night. you. Bye-bye. Poor Khabibi has a cold or something. Her little eye is bothering her. Now, is is your door shut, and is she going to yes, be a problem? Yes, it is. Okay. I don't know. Should but we need to? Should sit we on just start? Yeah. Nothing short of pure evil.